Welcome to the panel discussion, Cybersecurity in today's Department of Defense, sponsored by Lidos. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Servio Medina, he's Chief of the Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. Mitchell Komaroff is Principal Advisor for Cybersecurity Strategy, Planning and Oversight for the Defense Department Chief Information Officer. And Keith Johnson is Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer for the Defense and Intelligence Group at Lidos. And it's good to have you all here. And let's start with just giving us a quick background on, first of all, what your job entails and uh, what you're seeing in the threat landscape these days, because this is something that's morphing, changing all the time. Mitchell, why don't we start with you? Thank you, uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, I work in the, uh, the office of the DOD uh, CISO. Uh, Ms. Essie Miller is our, uh, is our CISO, and that's in the office of the, uh, of the uh, DOD Chief, Chief Information Officer, uh, who is uh, the acting CIO is Dr. Uh, John Zancardi. So within, uh, uh, within uh, our organization, uh, I uh, support uh, Ms. Miller by uh, overseeing uh, the operations of our uh, risk management activities uh, performed by one of our directorates, our portfolio management, uh, as well as our strategies and plans. Um, and regarding the threat landscape, uh, as, as, as you know, uh, the cybersecurity environment is a rapidly changing technology environment uh, where we've pivoted uh, over the years from isolated uh, information technology systems that support operations to what has emerged as cyber, where all operations are embedded uh, inside of uh, globally interconnected uh, telecommunications and computing, uh, computing infrastructure. So we, uh, performing our businesses or our, our missions, are embedded in the same global networked environment that our adversaries are embedded in. So this presents a uh, nearly infinite uh, uh, way for adversaries to get at our uh, information, get inside of our thinking, uh, uh, steal our intellectual property, and perhaps uh, also disrupt, disrupt our missions. I guess it's probably worth repeating something that we know, but it sometimes eludes us uh, how to respond to it, is that attacks and probes are continuous. Unlike when you were isolated, you could see a discrete attack and maybe it, something happened, maybe something di didn't. But now you're pretty much living with this second by second. Yes, so the, the, uh, the way that we're thinking about threat um, is uh, really along two dimensions. First, we are trying to understand threat from a capability perspective, going from uh, relatively uh, weak uh, adversarial capability tools uh, only available on the internet, uh, all the way up to uh, sophisticated uh, nation state actors that have uh, tremendous investments uh, in trying to understand latent vulnerabilities uh, in the technologies that we're using, uh, and also with the tradecraft to actually introduce vulnerabilities uh, into the infrastructure through uh, our supply chains. Uh, and so that's one dimension that we're thinking about it. The other is the attack life cycle. So how uh, an adversary can essentially uh, move through through the phases of trying to gain reconnaissance on the infrastructure all the way to uh, uh, gaining a foothold, moving laterally, and then ultimately uh, doing the intended damage, uh, whether it's, again, theft of intellectual property or uh, disruption of, uh, and then basically maintaining control over that infrastructure and then eliminating all traces of themselves. So, so the idea is we're trying to understand threat along both of those uh, mm -hmm. dimensions. Some aspects of them change very, very rapidly. Uh, for instance, as technology changes pretty, as it does very rapidly, the specific exploits that are the specific threats are going to change equally rapidly. But at the level that we've described of, of what a capable adversary looks like, we think that those things change and evolve more slowly. And then in between those two is 
what is the characteristic of the particular actors. Uh, what, you know, they can, that will evolve over time. We find that generally adversaries get more capable over time, particularly the low-end low actors become more capable as tools are available for them on the internet. So dealing with a specific threat, important as that is, I guess equally important is the, I guess the organizational agility and adaptability to keep changing sometimes daily so that you can meet whatever the new threat is. So that, that's, that's, that's a good point. So ultimately, I, I think that the, the, we do have to be able to evolve uh, systems in a number of ways that address the point that you just made. One is that as uh, new vulnerabilities are discovered uh, and we're able to fix them, we need to be able to, to fix them very rapidly uh, and at scale. Uh, but more challenging is the fact that our systems need to be able to evolve architecturally so that fundamental uh, changes in technology can be accommodated and fundamental new threat capabilities can be, can be addressed. Um, and that reflects the fact that cybersecurity uh, ultimately is implemented architecturally uh, at the particular technology component level as well as in our processes. Sure, okay, good. Well, good way to uh, frame the discussion. And Servio, you may not have a tactical environment in DOD, but you have one that's equally exposed, equally sought after in some ways by different actors perhaps, but equally sought after, and that is the, the health domain and the records related there too. So tell us more about that. That's exactly right. A, a little bit about myself first. Um, I currently serve as this policy branch cybersecurity chief for the Defense Health Agency, and the DHA was only established about four years ago to centralize and standardize support to the military health system. So instead of Army medicine, Navy medicine, Air Force medicine way of assessing for risk and authorizing to operate, centralizing that, which brings in some cost efficiencies and efficiencies of execution. Um, when I tell people what my title is and what I do, which is cybersecurity policy, I often get chided that that must be a really exciting job to be creating cybersecurity policy all day for a living. But I, I quickly clarify that it's not, that's not a, a fair characterization. One, DOD creates policy. DHA executes the policy. So yes, there may be instructions that are created by the DHA, and, and the director, Admiral uh, Raquel Bono, is the director of the DHA, and she signs out instructions which implement DOD policy, but while it may seem like a hair split, it's, it's an important distinction. And secondly, and this is where I may be complimenting Mitch in technical versus policy and people, where my focus is. There are so many policies that people are simply not aware of partially aware of, or they misinterpret, they misunderstand. And that leads to variations in implementation. So one of the primary objectives that I have in, brought into my office is how to promote greater awareness and understanding of existing policies, of existing processes. And if I may, just by point of introduction, uh, before my career started in the military health system, I taught math and computer science at the college level for 10 years. So. As a recovering educator, I'm pretty excited to be bringing kind of meaningful understanding of cybersecurity requirements to the person's desk when they're at the keyboard. When they're not at the keyboard, a lot of people think cyber stops when you leave the keyboard. Um, it, the medical device does not have to be networked mm -hmm. for it to be compromised. Mm -hmm. So how, in a way, if I may, how are we raising the bar of cyber hygiene mm -hmm. across the military health system? Small steps. Um, and Tom, yes, you mentioned uh, healthcare. Today, if you, it doesn't matter which study you look at, whether it's Panamon, Trend Micro, Verizon, healthcare is under attack. So we, the, the DHA is looking at an additional complexity. I was talking with Mitch about this earlier. HIPAA compliance, HIPAA security, HIPAA privacy is another factor in addition to cybersecurity that has to be considered when we're looking at our systems. So we're looking at what is best for patient care while maintaining the safeguarding of protected health information, personally identifiable information, in addition to the tenets of cybersecurity, confidentiality, integrity, availability, et cetera. And it's interesting, too, because the DOD is adopting a commercial provider's electronic health record that is in turn shared at some degree with millions of other records and thousands of other institutions that use that. And so that puts you, you know, as Mitch put it, you know, embedded in the same ecosystem as those that you're trying to thwart. 
That's right, and um, Admiral Bono has spoken to this at HIMSS and other, other events. Um, it puts DHA in a more competitive arena for the use of IT that's more cutting edge versus creating um, something in shop using COTS or GOTS to leverage the latest tools mm -hmm. that others in the industry are using. Okay, Keith, uh, Lidos has a pretty big footprint in a lot of different agencies, big company. You've got a good overview of all of DOD. What are the pain points your customers are expressing to you and what are the trends you see? Well, um, as you, just as for my background, I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Lidos, uh, and in that role I am responsible for uh, understanding the, the technology landscape. Cyber is one of our core competencies. Uh, we feel we're very strong in cyber, um, and uh, in addition, delivering uh, health care record systems to uh, uh, defense, uh, VA, uh, other places like that. Uh, our role in bringing COTS in is to make sure that they, they do meet security uh, policy, um, and and uh, are robust uh, to defend against uh, threats and protect privacy, uh, personally identifiable information, um, and um, obviously the uh, the mission uh, of our customers. Um, so, you know, what we see uh, in the the threat landscape and working with our customers obviously is a uh, a uh, a robust cyber workforce that is developing. Um, as, as the college graduates are, are uh, maturing, um, but this cyber workforce isn't necessarily just employed by us, it's employed by our adversaries, um, and also uh, freelance. Um, and so that the, um, you know, as, as Mitch was, was talking about, the fact is uh, it's not just a, a nation state or a rogue state or a hacker, it's, it's everything in between. Um, you know, one, one, one thing we've found is um, there, there is a robust marketplace uh, for, for cyber effects. Um, and uh, you know, right now you can go buy um, you know very very powerful um, uh, uh, exploitation mm -hmm. uh, capabilities. Uh, you can you can purchase uh, for higher uh, vulnerability, vulnerability uh, analysts uh, to go look for threats and look for doing the recon phase, as you mentioned. Um, and so that marketplace is something that's just a, a reality and maturing, um, just like any market where there's uh, potential to make money. Uh, there's going to be uh, uh, efforts to uh, exploit uh, that uh, that. Capability. Uh, another area that we're seeing is um, just the, uh, the the points of ingress uh, into systems. Uh, uh, despite our efforts to try to control that, uh, um, you know, there there are just richer ingress points because of uh, this requirements for mobility. Just in, in just in uh, a move from uh, desktops to laptops, uh, medical devices obviously is a is a big area that we're that we're they were addressing. Um, and then also moving into the, the non IT world, the Operational world, uh, SCADA systems uh, for some of our um, uh, some of our customers who are who are working on operational mm -hmm. uh, capabilities, uh, and then uh, moving into military, um, you know, hardware, weapon systems, and how do you really address cyber across that broader um, you know uh, you know system of 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 capabilities that we need to protect. Um, so um, that's kind of our, my, our take uh, from, from industry is that there is a, just a broader marketplace and a broader uh, set of ingress opportunities and exploit, uh, opportunities to exploit than ever before. Um, and so that's what we're focused on addressing uh, from a, uh, a capability perspective and then looking to see how we can automate a lot of this hygiene so that we can move up the scale to address the more sophisticated threats. Okay, that point is a good one. Hygiene and automation, and it gets back to something I think that Mitch said, and that is uh, the architectural uh, approach to networks has to change. And you didn't quite put it this way, but I got the impression you were driving at the idea of the automation of network resilience so that networks respond to cyber threats because the velocity of threats is getting to the point where it's, people can't react that fast. Right. Yeah, so I think that um, the the evolution in, in technology is enabling certain architectural concepts that we've had, I think, for a while, uh, but, couldn't, it, but couldn't, could not execute mm -hmm. because the, basically most of those architectures were implemented in hardware and, and um, whereas today, uh, with the emergence of uh, you know strong virtualization capabilities, uh, both within the networking environment and now 
uh, within, uh, uh, you know, kind of cloud technologies, uh, 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 virtualization within the data center, uh, what that's allowing us to do is, is implement a capability to have the network itself and the computing infrastructure itself respond to uh, an evolving threat. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is kind of an, this is an important idea from the uh, standpoint of network uh, resilience. Within the department, uh, we have um, uh, working within our with our joint staff and and looking at requirements for systems in the department. We've recently. Uh, implemented a system survivability um, uh, key performance parameter for our uh, military systems. Um, and fundamentally what this requires is that the components that are uh, championing uh, the creation of a, of a military system actually describe uh, the uh, non-kinetic contested environment that the system is going to have to face, including you know electronic warfare, but also including uh, cyber, uh, the, ultimately the threat environment sure. that a system's going to have to take. The fundamental architectural concept that that we worked out as we were thinking through that addresses the trade between information support to the system. So, uh, generally, systems, uh, uh, you know, I work in ideal circumstances with very robust information support, uh, but that actually expands the attack surface for those systems. And so uh, sometimes you need to be able to dial back that information support and operate in a, in a degraded mode. So all these kinds of changes uh, in order to do real time requires very powerful situational awareness at the network and computing levels. Mm -hmm. uh, man, man out of the loop. Uh, and then have the ability to have the network and computing infrastructure respond, essentially reducing uh, the attack surface for those systems. My guests today are Servio Medina, he's Chief of Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. Mitchell Komarov is Principal Advisor for Cybersecurity Strategy, Planning and Oversight for the Department of Defense CIO. And Keith Johnson is the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer for the Defense Intelligence Group at Lighthouse. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is cybersecurity in today's DOD, sponsored by Lighthouse, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. At Lighthouse, we know you're working to solve the world's big challenges. A cyber attack can cripple your efforts and put you on the defensive fast. We focus on end-to-end -end cybersecurity defense, not just the latest problem, so you can spend your time on what matters. Lidos, a Fortune 500 company delivering practical answers for a complicated world. Find out how we protect the world's biggest networks from the most sophisticated threats at Lidos.com answers. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cybersecurity in today's DOD, sponsored by Lighthouse, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer for the Defense and Intelligence Group at Lighthouse. Mitchell Komarov is Principal Advisor for Cybersecurity Strategy, Planning and Oversight at the Defense Department's CIO Office. And Servio Medina is Chief of Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. And before the break, we were talking about the idea of resiliency, recovery, how you automate those, how you architect your networks. Uh, Servio, I want to go to you. You have a slightly different take on it, that idea of resiliency, recovery, protecting against attack surfaces from a maybe slightly less technology standpoint. Thank you, Tom. Um, <clears throat> just to start, uh, the Department of Defense released a memo in 2015, September, titled, the DOD Cybersecurity and Culture Compliance Initiative. It's, it's, it's notable to say cybersecurity culture and compliance, not the, the culture of compliance. Um, and in this memo, there were some assertions made that I think we've all come to understand because it's touted by many commercial studies that most incidents in the cyber domain, whether they're targeting healthcare organizations or cyber in general, trace back to you and me the human element. And the memo goes on to say there's three primary factors, poor use, poor configuration, poor implementation. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the primary focus that I have right now is how are we empowering the people who are responsible for acquisition, configuration, 
implementing, maintaining patching systems, but then also everyone who is a user of the system. And so there, there has to be some efforts to energize how we empower people. And I would almost recall um, a couple years ago at Hims, the keynote speaker reminded us that still today, the best form of marketing is word of mouth. It's not one hour of training a year that we have to take as federal employees, otherwise we have our network privileges removed. And it's not that poster on the wall. It's because somebody is talking to somebody else and reminding them or giving them some cues. And so that's, where, that's when, um, when I think uh, Keith was mentioning about the robust cyber workforce. It's really encouraging also to see the federal efforts with DOD on the NICE framework that now instead of <clears throat> instead of just looking at a system administrator and a network administrator, and there are- framework, you mean the National uh, Cybersecurity Education Initiative? That's right, okay. that's right. So mm -hmm. where it used to be cybersecurity workforce, it's a DOD instruction, uh, manual 8570, now we're looking at cyberspace workforce with 54 work roles that include forensics, legal, privacy, historian. So the recognition that there are many people who contribute to healthy cybersecurity for our systems and our information. That's what really encourages me in the way of resilience of our networks is who is getting, configuring, maintaining, and using the systems. And as maybe one <clears throat> parting comment, I don't know if you've seen, but the Girl Scouts have now initiated cybersecurity badges. Wow. There's 18 cybersecurity badges. Really? Wow. So I think we could take a note, a page out of their book is how are we culturalizing the understanding of cybersecurity as sort of part of our business, not somebody else's job, some chief information security officer's job, but we all have a responsibility. And that's the focus that we're, we're trying to put to complement the technical focus. Yeah, what is the slogan? Only you can prevent cyber attacks, right? Actually, that's a fair analog. Um, to, to how we approach the, the marketing of cybersecurity. All right, so Keith, that means for agencies it is a cultural, it's a people, it's an HR and a technology problem. It sure is. Uh, so one thing that as far as a, uh, on industry, uh, what we're doing is uh, uh, implementing like robust cyber training initiatives across our workforce where it's not just the yearly compliance training, it is a ad hoc uh, kind of training exercise. Like for instance, we, we will send, um, you know, uh, kind of our own phishing emails to our workforce to see who will click on links um, that would take them to malicious websites and then offer on-the-spot training, uh, remediation, and, and so forth. And if they continue, we will obviously kind of limit their ability to, to do those things in the future. Um, so there is a, just, a, just, on, just getting back to the hygiene area, there's, there's hygiene on the actual infrastructure, making it easy. Like, for instance, one easy thing we've done is we've labeled all external emails with external in the subject line uh, so that you understand what it, where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so now, I mean, I am so trained. If, even if it's a, a real link, I almost never click on an email link. I always just copy it, inspect it before I put it in, just because the hygiene and then that personal, just like uh, you know, cyber, it's, it's it, the, the weakest link of a chain is really what we're talking about. You know, from a reconnaissance standpoint, where you know adversaries are looking for people uh, that may exhibit behaviors that would make it e that would click on a link or do something that they want them to do. And so, having a, that training program is very, very important. The other thing that we're doing is is implementing you know, NIST 800-171 standards across our enterprise. Um, uh, obviously, there's, there's a DFARS uh, regulation to comply for all federal contractors to comply with, with NIST 171. Uh, and so that is a, a big initiative that we've undertaken to, uh, you know, Lidos recently over last year uh, has integrated two large companies, uh, Lidos and then uh, a part of Lockheed Martin called uh, ISNGS, uh, two $5 billion companies coming together. So, so that, that merger and now uh, laying a, a common cyber framework uh, with the guidance of NIST 171 uh, is, is a way to kind of help ensure that we have common protocols and protections in place to ensure that we have resilience. And the other 171 area... 171 covers... I'm sorry. 171 covers all non-federal security uh, infrastructure. It. So it's for, the in, for industry, whereas uh, 853 is, applies to, the f to federal uh, infrastructure. There's a lot of commonalities across those. Um, and then the last thing is, um, in resiliency, what we're looking to do is um, recreate, um, the, as Mitch mentioned, in a cloud and virtualized infrastructure, there's, there's approaches that you can take uh, to separate applications, data, infrastructure uh, that allow you to recreate and reconstruct automatically uh, those applications a lot more 
quickly with, with less um, manual labor than before. Now that's a, a longer term uh, initiative. We, we call it many things, uh, you know, kind of um, infrastructure modernization, application modernization, uh, but ultimately what we're trying to do is get to that uh, automated, um, uh, virtualized infrastructure that delivers data and applications securely, but then can also be recreated when you are under attack. Got it, yeah, so you virtualize, you separate, and then it's easier to virtualize. Correct, exactly. And reproduce or modify without changing the whole system. Exactly, because what we've seen in the, in the past, you know, because of limitations in hardware capability, we had to embed uh, those, those capabilities together, which makes it more difficult to bring up if you are under attack. Now, with, as Mitch mentioned, with, with, the, with the, uh, uh, just the enhanced computing power that we have and, new, and really new infrastructure frameworks that are available, mm -hmm. we're now able to um, separate those components, which then allows us more flexibility in bringing back up. Which also gives you more resilience, too. Exactly, exactly. Mitchell. Uh, I just uh, wanted to foot stomp uh, Servio's important point about the uh, workforce and to, to, uh, to point out that from the department's perspective, yes, everybody uh, has roles and responsibilities uh, uh, to uh, help assure the DOD's uh, infrastructure, but a key change is really making the business of cybersecurity actually commander's business, right? So ultimately, uh, our effort is really to uh, look at, uh, you know, what we sometimes call hygiene, but it's really uh, the readiness of the DOD to uh, perform our mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, that is commander's business. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in Really, this is not going to happen until there is that level of responsibility at that at the commander level, and that uh, you know what attitudes and what have you flow downhill. So it's mm -hmm. it's basically if uh, there's a willingness uh, for uh, business convenience or even very uh, near-term operational convenience uh, to take uh, shortcuts in the cybersecurity perspective that actually uh, introduces significant vulnerabilities to the DOD, uh, then if that is not uh, taken seriously at the leadership level, then uh, it's going to be a hard time convincing uh, no amount of, of sending emails uh, with uh, spurious links in them are going are gonna to fix the, fix the problem. Okay. Can I talk to sure, you yeah. for a moment? Um, <clears throat> In 2011, I think it was, Forrester released a, a white paper report, and it talked about navigating the future of the chief information security officer and the challenges. And a brief pull out of it was, until the CISO's role is changed to something more of a chief business security officer. So cybersecurity is there, cost, benefit, risk. That's when the commander is going to be speaking with every input of requirements, where cybersecurity is one of many requirements that's considered. Until that tone at the top, sir, if you will, that I, I think we're still going to be kind of in a reactive, it's somebody else's job, somebody else takes care of it mode. So I think that's an important mm -hmm. point that we're seeing that is starting to happen. Cybersecurity is at the table, but I don't think it's quite there as being embraced as one of the uh, one of the number of requirements that goes into the decision making. Well, I guess a few more petabyte type breaches, and maybe that'll push that whole <laughs> effort along a little bit. Final <coughs> comment on that? Go ahead, please. Just one thing on uh, from an industry perspective that may that that um, is a little bit different is that because uh, of their perception of potentially losing large programs due to a cyber breach. Uh, we're we're very much we're very proactive in in addressing any any perceived cyber vulnerabilities or gaps in our networks uh, because we take obviously we take our customers' mission very seriously but we also um, at the end of the day uh, stand to lose a lot of money if uh, if there is a, a termination because of a of a cyber breach so so we I think there is a at least in uh, industry um, a recognition that cyber needs to be right at the table at the CEO. Uh, level that can can speak to the business impacts uh, of potential failures uh, uh, for, for that that could uh, result in, in in large losses, and so uh, I think we're we're getting there. We, I think we still got a little bit ways to go, but I think we're at the table, and there is definitely a business context around how we talk about cyber protection. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to switch gears here and talk about data analytics. 
because uh, network logs for decades have produced lots of data looking backwards on what's happening, and that's true of cybersecurity. Now the term we hear is predictive analytics. So I'd like to get an idea of how agencies are looking at data in terms of finding out what might be happening in the future. That certainly helps you know, protect systems. And I think it also ties in with the human factor, too, because the less that land on your individual users' desks, the less they become so critical to, to pushing back cyber attacks. So, uh, Mitchell, why don't we start with you? So, uh, you know, predictive analytics, uh, narrowly understood, uh, is uh, an area that, like some of the other areas we've discussed here, uh, uh, has been around for a while, but the computing horsepower really just wasn't there to support it. So, fundamentally, uh, it's a set of of algorithms, uh, some of them statistical uh, algorithms, uh, some of them uh, artificial intelligence algorithms, uh, you know, expert systems and what have you, and more recently, uh, machine learning uh, capabilities where, where we really unleash the computing power from our preconceived notions about, you know, what the relationships are among critical variables. Uh, but uh, more broadly understood, it is those uh, scientific and uh, mathematical capabilities uh, tied to a large-scale computing infrastructure, uh, very large data sets, uh, and uh, computing architectures that actually enable uh, uh, the, you know, powerful computing on, on those very large uh, data sets. Uh, so, uh, ultimately, uh, there, that capability becomes critical to uh, a number of key initiatives that are important to the department, uh, including uh, uh, what we call uh, cyber situational awareness. Uh, also, uh, they become central to the ability to deal with things like uh, insider threat, uh, and we can talk, uh, you know, uh, more about those uh, as we get the rest of the opinions. So in predictive analytics, uh, the first thing that we, we, we look for is, is what's the, what is the framework, what's the context around um, analytics? Because ultimately, a human has to interpret and make a decision. Um, and so, um, you know, Mitchell mentioned uh, like the, the threat life cycles uh, that our adversaries uh, use. Um, and so, you know, one uh, great framework that we're, we're using is, uh, you know, kind of an adversarial threat landscape or cyber kill chain or cyber threat uh, life cycle. Um, uh, they all have the same kinds of components. Implementing that uh, at a procedural uh, level uh, where analysts can understand they have the same vernacular vocabulary um, is very, very important. And then what analytics can do is inform uh, analysts on um, you know, what they're actually seeing. Um, and so I think, uh, Tom, you mentioned that uh, you know, how can we eliminate uh, you know, th the data deluge to analysts? In some ways, I, I kind of want to get more data to analysts, and let, it, it, but it's data in context. What we have seen is that um, uh, without context, you know, analysts can't make decisions at the right speed um, and uh, are just uh, really reactive. But the more we can put that context together with a, with a threat land life cycle um, and then inform uh, with some analytics and you know, getting to predictive uh, is important. What, what we're doing in predictive is trying to tie the, the, the dots together. And what that means is you have, you know, let's say, a intrusion event um, and there's certain signatures to that intrusion event. And what you want to do is really understand you, want to, you don't want to understand the bits and bytes. You want to understand the people and intentions mm -hmm. that are happening and what, what, who is doing, what, doing something to you. What that means is you have to elevate the conversation, elevate the analysis to take the, the specific intrusion event, the sets and the signatures, and tie that to ultimately campaigns uh, that you can ascribe to a certain uh, set of, of actors. Then you can start understanding their behaviors mm -hmm. and then tie that to what kinds of activities are they planning to do in the future and then start looking for those activities. So it's, a, it's not just a you know, algorithmic exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a framework and an approach that includes procedures, training, 
training, um, a common vocabulary, and then ultimately a knowledge base that can tie you know, what we see now to what we've seen in the past, which informs what we might see in the future. We're going to take a short break on that fascinating note. My guests today are Servio Medina. He's chief of the Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. Mitchell Komaroff is principal advisor for cybersecurity strategy, planning, and oversight at the Department of Defense CIO office. Keith Johnson is the chief technology officer and chief engineer, defense and intelligence group at Lighthouse. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is cybersecurity in today's DOD, sponsored by Lighthouse, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. At Lighthouse, we know you're working to solve the world's big challenges. A cyber attack can cripple your efforts and put you on the defensive fast. We focus on end-to-end cybersecurity defense, not just the latest problem, so you can spend your time on what matters. Lidos, a Fortune 500 company delivering practical answers for a complicated world. Find out how we protect the world's biggest networks from the most sophisticated threats at Lidos.com answers. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cybersecurity in today's DOD, sponsored by Lighthouse, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests are Mitchell Komaroff, Principal Advisor for Cybersecurity Strategy in Planning and Oversight in the Department of Defense Chief Information Officer's Office. Keith Johnson is the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer for the Defense and Intelligence Group at Lighthouse, and Servio Medina. He is chief of the Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. And Keith, before the break, we were discussing the idea of getting enough data analytics to be able to profile attacks, which then gives you a clue to who is attacking or what group they might be coming from. And I want to pull on that a little bit because it seems like that could help get to attribution, which is sometimes useful in this cyber deal. How does that work? Well, attribution has kind of many layers. Uh, ultimately, if you're looking for belly buttons, uh, that's a, it's a difficult activity, but uh, it's, it's something that we, we, you know, we do support, uh, and um, uh, we're proud of our, of our history of contributing uh, uh, to the, the Defense Department, um, you know, campaigns and threat actors, uh, name threat actors that then uh, other, other um, uh, parties and agencies can, can then use and, and start, start with uh, a body of knowledge and then look for those same signatures because you know cyber in some ways it's not a it's not a you know a one-man sport right we mm -hmm. we want to uh, we want to share uh, and collaborate uh, uh, to look for those uh, you know basically the work that I do uh, is not just for me I'm protecting I can use that data mm -hmm. to protect other people as well and uh, so there's there's definitely information we want to share um, so uh, that so is an area is one thing and you can profiling is the one thing but that right. doesn't mean you know where they're coming uh, uh, from Ultimately, it's uh, it's very difficult to get down to a belly button a name um, with just cyber data. Uh, that's where you you look to other data sources to help um, uh, kind of uh, vector to to particular parties. Um, so you know, there, th again, it's not just about bits and bytes, right? It's about you're looking for people and intent. Uh, the intent comes with the 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 ways they're they're doing things. The the TTPs is what we call them. The techniques and plans that the mm -hmm. adversary uses. Um, uh, so, but the the people aspect uh, usually requires additional data sources that kind of help you uh, vector in on the, on those people. Yeah, and Mitchell, I mean, DoD has a little more latitude than than civilian agencies in maybe turning around an attack, but you don't do that very often, and it's, I think it's done with great caution because of how hard it is to pin down where it's precisely coming from. That's correct. So this, this issue of, of attribution and the distinction of, of making that ultimate call about who's responsible is that kind of transition point from uh, going from shield to sword. Uh, but the key, the key point is that uh, the, this notion of TTPs uh, being actually the way that a particular uh, a, a particular attack may unfold uh, is important from a predictive perspective. That is, um, if we integrate into our uh, predictive analytics a model that includes uh, all the TTPs that we know about, uh, and ultimately we're observing uh, early steps in the attack lifecycle, we can soon pretty quickly triangulate. If we see we see basically uh, certain early steps taking place, and then uh, within our 
uh, situational awareness infrastructure, we see other steps light up that can be tied to those TTPs and will allow us to predict uh, where future uh, steps might occur and therefore essentially allow us to head them off at the pass. And from a TTPs defensive again stands for? Techniques, tactics, and procedures. Techniques, so, tactics, and procedures. Right, so it's it. ultimately uh, the attack life cycle. Uh, I'm, as an adversary, looking to basically accomplish the particular objectives of, you know, essentially gaining a foothold, moving laterally, uh, uh, being able to gather, say, the information that I need, being able to remove it, being able to clean up after myself. There, there, there are different ways of doing that and uh, doing those, each of those individual steps. Uh, and uh, which ones are selected uh, can become the hallmark of a TTP that we can, that we can use potentially to attribute, mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately uh, uh, not necessarily to attribute, but clearly to predict uh, future steps and in so that TTP. to protect against. That's correct. Right. It's almost like uh, you can look at the score marks on a piece of ordnance and tell what type of technique was used to launch it, even though if you don't know who did it. That's right. Uh, and it, there's humans behind, uh, and so humans have behaviors, right? And behaviors uh, are kind of unique to, to, to um, culture and to uh, group mentalities and even done to the person. And so ultimately what you're doing is you're, you're looking for those behaviors that are instantiated in TTPs uh, that you can then go look for. Sure. And Servio, do you have profilers in some of that human capital side of things that can look at these and say, yeah, this is a somebody in a basement in XYZ part of the world? Um, yes, but I'd almost like to turn the lens around, if you will. I know the profile is looking at attribution from where the attack source is coming from, but turning it inward to an organization, how are we profiling the organization's posture and maturity from policy, let me start with people, people, products, policy, and processes. Um, personally, I'm excited at the idea of predictive analytics. I've not been involved, but I can't tell you how many times I get the question, oh, so you studied graduate studies in mathematics, do you ever use it? And I say, well, yes, of course. I have a, you know, a logical approach to thing, a, a rigor of study, a rigor of thought, but here's an opportunity for regression analysis and modeling, though I wouldn't be involved in doing it, I would be absolutely jazzed to study it. I would pause and only hope also that we would be as excited to improve the products and processes we have in place today. And I'll give you a quick example. Our colleagues in the DHA Privacy and Civil Liberties Office hold an incident response tabletop exercise annually, mock scenarios. Actual DHA headquarter officials were involved. Mm -hmm. During one of the outbriefs, the, the scenario unfolded where there was 10,000 records that went missing and a breach was reported. Again, a scenario. And it involved a doctor using authorized access. So here's kind of a touchy situation. Is this inappropriate or not? They're using authorized credentials, authorized system. During the outbrief, one of the inner circle um, officials who was receiving the brief, not an IT guy, not a cybersecurity guy, used to be a practicing psychiatrist, speaking of the behavior, and he asked a poignant question that stopped the room. Can the IT we have in place today be configured to detect anomalous behavior? So I'm really excited at what predictive analytics can mean for us going forward, but first I would love for us to see how are we really uh, optimizing the use of what we have in place today. And it was because of his question that it led to further dialogue that might not have, sometimes it takes an incident, that's the silver lining in an incident, even if it's a mock scenario, to get a dialogue going of, what do we have in place once we become more mature mm -hmm. and leveraging all of our tools in our, in our arsenal, then how can we further enhance by additional IT capabilities, predictive analytics, data loss prevention, et cetera. So kind of turning it inwards a little bit. And that gets us to the idea of the insider threat, which is a big deal for every federal agency, including DOD. And what's the latest thinking in dealing with insider threats? Because uh, they, they occur, they, they act. Yes, so with the, within the department, uh, we have, uh, we're implementing uh, an insider threat program, uh, and uh, our, our Office of the Undersecretary, uh, of an Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence uh, has mm -hmm. a lead for the, for the overall program. Ultimately, uh, insider threat, there's, you know, no, no silver bullet, uh, but, and really drives a requirement for a real interdisciplinary approach. I think that uh, you know both Servio and Keith mentioned key key ideas here. One is that we really do need to 
leverage the information technology capabilities that we have to look for anomalous uh, behaviors uh, within our networking infrastructure. Uh, but, but in addition, we actually uh, need to be able to leverage uh, information that's off-net uh, that also is indicative of anomalous behavior. And we, we need to be able to integrate uh, those two stovepipes uh, and apply our analytics to that. And actually also the expert uh, people that can evaluate the data uh, need to be able to look look at that same data together. So, uh, so for example, someone, a an IP address or a person, which you, I mean, if it's inside, you know, who's assigned to that machine, downloaded these files, that same person externally you find out went to a foreign country the next day. I mean, I'm making up that example, but that kind of thing, is that what you mean? Yes. So Tony it's ultimately, it's, 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 uh, there are transaction, there, the, people's behavior is, leaves a trace uh, within the uh, networking infrastructure that situational awareness is, is trying to uh, ferret out, uh, but they, they also leave a trace in transactions that occur off net, uh, and ultimately uh, we need to be able to cross-correlate so uh, for industry, so we, we uh, at Lidos, we've implemented a very robust insider threat program um, uh, in response to uh, the potential loss of, of data, both ours and our customers. Uh, and as Mitchell mentioned, it is uh, not just about cyber data. Cyber data is a part of it, but, but we, we are looking at all kinds of data that could help us understand where the risks are. Uh, and so risks are, and, and have, have, have we've defined them, they are uh, about you know, the, the behaviors. They're also about where, who is accessing what kinds of data. So we've categorized the data and who has access to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, even if uh, your behavior may not be um, you know, very um, anomalous, just by the fact that you have access to certain data sources, um, elevates your risk. Uh, and so we have a continuous evaluation program at Lidos where we are, uh, where every day we're looking at uh, individuals and, and our assessed risk uh, of their risk profile uh, based on their access patterns and other behaviors. Um, and then we, we leverage that big data analytic capability in order to vector our, our analysts to go do some, you know, some additional investigations. Sometimes it's, it's anomalous. Uh, sometimes uh, it's really not an insider threat. It may just be a uh, related to kind of workplace uh, disgruntlement mm -hmm. or maybe just uh, some, some issues that need to be addressed. And so we bring in our HR department and other things really to kind of get ahead of those kind of issues. So we, we see insider threat is not just about focusing on loss of data. It's about improving employee health and, um, and it's improving that overall um, environment uh, of, of the day that we work in. Keith, I appreciate how you just segued because I think when we hear insider threat, we think someone is going to work intentionally to compromise or sabotage. And as mentioned earlier, the statistics DOD has shared various studies commercially. Most incidents involve human error, whether it's ignorance, negligence, or poor judgment. So when insider threat, when we realize that it is also including those who may be, oops, I've made a mistake, that's where I think some of this, the strength of data analytics may lend to. And um, one quick thing, when you're driving down the, down the road and you see your speed displayed on the side of the road, what do you do? You probably tap your brakes. Look for a camera. You, <laughs> exactly. National Highway Traffic Safety Agency says 80% likely that you think you're going to get a ticket and you slow down. So I'm really curious and excited, and I don't know the answer to this. How can predictive analytics, how can we tie this, all this analysis of this information to give us these nudges? And during the break, you mentioned uh, if an email comes from an external source, the subject says external. That's one little nudge that kind of puts us on notice. Mm -hmm. I think DLP can be another, another one that helps, hey, is this really something that you wanted to send in the clear without encryption? And I'm really fascinated at what data analytics can do to help nudge us, because that's what's missing. One hour of training a year, is simply not sufficient. So what are we doing to nudge people while they're at their while they're behind the keyboard so they're not engaging in risky behavior? 
All right, uh, Mitchell, I wanted to ask you a kind of a final question here before we wind up, and we can hopefully have all uh, have time to comment on it, but email has reemerged as a major threat vector for a variety of reasons, mainly because of how much more sophisticated the phishing attacks have become modeled after individuals and not after groups and so on, and aimed at individuals and not at groups. What's DOD doing on that front? Well, I think that uh, Servio mentioned a couple of uh, things that we are doing. So. So ultimately, we are trying to disable uh, the, the uh, links and things like that could show up in an email. So uh, that will basically deal with the knee-jerk reaction to, you know, of users to want to click on things. Ultimately, also, the interpreting of emails that are coming in uh, and giving visual cues uh, that uh, is, also, is also important. Fundamentally, um, the the only sure defense is solely relying on a digital signature uh, that uh, you actually and we that we can assess the trust of through machine you know machine right, purposes. Check it at the perimeter, right? And not at the ultimately. Ultimately, inbox. when to try and thwart uh, a sophisticated effort to uh, to uh, a social engineering attack is to try and take on uh, the adversary in his space as opposed to forcing him to fight in, 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 our, in our space. Well, you know, I wish we had another hour because there's lots of things we could pull on and discuss, but we are out of time. So let me thank today's guests. They were uh, Mitchell Komaroff, the Principal Advisor for Cybersecurity Strategy, Planning and Oversight at the DOD CIO Office. Keith Johnson is the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer for the Defense and Intelligence Group at Lidos. And Servio Medina, Chief of the Cybersecurity Policy Branch at the Defense Health Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For more on this discussion, be sure to visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term Lidos. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, Cybersecurity in today's Department of Defense, sponsored by Lidos on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Lidos.